Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. The date is April sixteenth, two thousand and twenty-two, and it's episode one hundred and forty-four. And we are covering the top five paranoid thrillers tonight. Um, Frank, uh, how do you feel about this genre in general? Like, it doesn't. It feels a little off the beaten path, like for some reason as a podcast. But um, is this a genre that you're? Yeah, I I tend to be a, a fan of the the thriller genre in general. Um, some aspects of it, not so much. Like, I mean, I like noir, and I think that noir kinds of tend to overlap into the paranoid thriller arena. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of movies that I'll watch just in general that are about like psychological warfare between like you know two people or a group of people against a person um i tend to really like horror movies that have that element to them Mm -hmm. um especially stuff that has unreliable narrators or um, movies that do a really good job of keeping you guessing uh, until the end about what the whatever like the the true like twists of the plot is or however you want to look at it um i definitely like all five movies on this list um in hindsight, I'm not sure if the one, I probably would take one of these movies off and replace it with something else, um, just because one I think is more of a straight thriller. Okay, so good. What, where's, like, what What signifies the paranoid thriller to you, and I'm focusing on the paranoid word there? Where there's the element of you as the viewer are as uncertain as the the character who's having things done to them about whether or not it's real or that there's an actual threat and not just a perceived threat. Mm -hmm. And I think the best paranoid thrillers are the ones that keep you as the viewer guessing until the end of the movie. Um, Gotcha. And even then sometimes when the reveal happens where you find out whatever, um, what's actually happening like sometimes it's not even clear then so you still come away with a feeling of uncertainty <clears throat> about what you've seen um so and there's cons- been a conspiracy on its own then wouldn't necessarily constitute a paranoid thriller to you if the audience it's all about whether what the audience knows and what the audience doesn't know and right and how well the movie forces that feeling upon you as the viewer mm-hmm. while you're watching it gotcha um so here's a good example like mm-hmm. <clears throat> Manchurian Candidate is a really good psychological thriller, mm-hmm. but it's not particularly a paranoid psychological thriller because you have more information as the viewer than the characters in the movie do. And the best paranoid thrillers are the ones where you have as little information, like tangible, like empirical information in the movie as the characters in that movie have, if that makes sense. It does so under that criteria would something that we talked about at the end of last year the past or no earlier this year i guess the passenger would that fall under paranoid thriller to you see i think i think you know more than he does hmm. like you you know there's more of a threat to him than he knows is a threat to him gotcha like he he doesn't take it as seriously because he's unaware of certain key pieces of information that you're made aware of while watching the movie 
so every one of these movies except for number five has that element where there's things withheld from you as the viewer and eventually you learn i guess in every case you learn maybe maybe there, there there's one where it's mostly uncertain and then there's one where you know everything from the very beginning um our number five movie which is just a movie i've wanted to talk about for a while which is why i put it on the list do you think a movie could then you know what let me hold off on that question till we talk about that movie so i'll give you a good example mm-hmm. um and here's a couple movies that i really enjoy um so the machinist is a really good paranoid thriller because um christian bale's character is such an unreliable because you're seeing mostly from his point of view and he's so unreliable because of his insanity that you don't ever know if what's happening around him is actually happening or is just part of his delusion right um the lighthouse is another good one like where you don't know what's actually happening and what's part of Robert Pattinson's delusion. And honestly, like at the end of that movie, are they even two separate people? You know what I mean? Like that's, those are the kind of things and a movie that I'm not the biggest fan of, but I still like think is really well done. Like Memento, you know what I mean? Like you don't Mm -hmm. like you're seeing the movie from his perspective for the most part and learning things as he's learning them, which is, I guess the, whatever the overall like central device of that movie um but then there's movies like parasite there's a good example parasite Mm -hmm. from a couple years ago that's a great thriller but is not necessarily withholding information from you you know what i mean right and i think that's the distinction between the two so the conversation at that point is that a paranoid thriller yeah okay and and And, is it the greatest paranoid thriller of all time maybe yeah it's up there yeah uh i mean it's hard to argue anything else right marathon man maybe was another one i considered putting on the list Hmm. um we we just talked about blowout late last year um was blowout fall under that category and i guess blow up for that sake maybe yeah but blow up more than blowout okay because antonioni keeps you in the dark just as much as david hemmings is in the dark whereas you know there's a conspiracy aligning against john travolta in in blowout you know what i mean like yep you're you're pretty much aware very early on like what's happening that he's unaware of or only like vaguely suspicious of until it becomes too late kind of so yeah i got you 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 know what else is a good paranoid thriller black swan there's another Mm. example of Mm -hmm. a movie that like because you don't know if what you're seeing is really happening or is just natalie portman's character's delusion of what's happening so yeah so like like i'm not a big fan of the movie but pie would be a paranoid thriller as well sure right yeah okay all right i got you um 
I just figured we'd clarify that since we don't have a short list necessarily for you to go through. I was looking for examples right. because as we discovered prior to the podcast, um, Frank developed this list in July of last year in uh, th- 30, uh, 37 minutes or something like that. So Right. And so I went back through my, my notes on my phone because uh-huh. that's usually because usually what I do is I'll just put down. 10 to 15 movies and that's what i call the short list and then i go through and make my decision of what my five are so i went back to that date in my phone and it's literally just the five movies on this list and nothing else so right i guess i was pretty fucking sure of myself yeah <clears throat> it's either but you it, take it as, as as certainty or just like here's five fucking movies for this no 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 because we I, had talked about it before so it was yeah. one of those things like where i had thought about it for a long time and i just put them down yeah, this actually list, I think, is close to two years in the making almost. Um, yeah. we, we had talked about it as a possible category like two years ago. But. And really because of the number five movie on this list, honestly, was mm. the reason why I wanted, like when we were talking about it, that I wanted to do this list in the first place. And now you've just expelled it from the list to some degree, um, so when hilarious. We, I mean, when, when we talk about the movie, I'll explain why yeah. I think it still works, but it's not necessarily... Yeah, doesn't necessarily fit the definition that I just gave. It's probably going to be the answer to my questions, is my guess. So, um, <clears throat> all right. So let's just go ahead and stop talking around this number five movie. So number five on the list is 1967's Wait Until Dark, directed by Terrence Young. It stars Audrey Hepburn, Alan Arkin, and Richard Crenna. Has a 96% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 91% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why you put it on this list? So the movie follows... Um, uh audrey hepburn's character um susie who is it's never quite explained how but she's a recently blind woman um young i would say like early 30s i think is what she's supposed to be in this movie maybe late 20s probably early 30s uh married to a photographer um so she's kind of trying to learn how to function without her sight um just a big brown world is how she describes it at one point um the underlying story is that there's these criminals who are transporting heroin inside of um antique porcelain dolls from montreal um where are they in san francisco in new york san francisco no they're in new york because they landed jfk it is new york so they're transporting um transporting these these dolls filled with heroin um so this woman lisa is carrying a doll on a plane and as she's (coughs) exiting the plane she sees someone in the distance that causes her to become uneasy so she finds a way to force the doll off on the photographer husband who you don't know is the photographer husband at that point but that's who it is um and then as she's leaving the airport this man with glasses and a trench coat grabs her and takes her off um so you later find out that richard crenna and um his accomplice uh carlino um richard crenna plays uh mike and what's this man's name jack weston plays carlino they're these two like two-bit hoods that have just gotten out of prison that have an association with this lisa woman um and have been invited to her apartment so they go to the apartment and realize pretty early on that it's not 
her apartment that is somebody else's and then find her dead body in the closet um when alan arkin's uh wrote character comes in and um basically forces them to dispose of the body and then help him locate this doll uh that's been tracked to this place um so they can get his heroin so let me say that first of all there's some pretty silly plot holes in this movie that i don't think i necessarily focused on when i saw it for the first time and it's been quite a while since i've seen this movie um, and I'm a huge Audrey Hepburn, Mark. Like, we never really talked about that on the podcast, but Audrey Hepburn, one of my favorite actresses of all time. Um, it's like eight eight little, like, dime bags of heroin. Like, all the right. trouble they go through to get this tiny little amount of heroin. When we're watching movies now where people have, like, you know, kilos of heroin that they're, like, hauling across state lines and, like, you know, freaking like conversion vans or whatever and they go through all this trouble to like seal it up in this doll so they can fly it in um well i mean what three four years later it's like the french connection is dealing with right right so that 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 conceit is kind of like like weak that there's Mm -hmm. so much effort being put into getting this small amount of drugs Mm -hmm. um so rote has figured out through the presumed torture of Lisa that this is where the doll is because that's the man that she gave it to. Um, so he threatens and persuades uh, Mike and Carlino to go along with the scam where they're going to um, basically run a long con on uh, Audrey Hepburn's character, Susie to get the doll from her husband is tricked into going out of town by Mike um to ashbury park to photograph a chemical plant with another ridiculous fucking Mm -hmm. um and Susie's alone in this house you know in his blind so a long portion of this movie is um mike carlino and wrote all pretending to be different people to confuse her and kind of throw her off guard and put her back on her heels um and also plant a seed of doubt that Mike is somehow involved in the murder of this Lisa woman um, who was found. Uh, what, what do they say? She's like Saugus or something like that. Yeah. Um, the woman from Saugus. Anyway, so, and he was having an affair with her, uh, which she doesn't believe, but Mike is convincing because Mike comes in and says that he's an old friend of the husband's from, from the military. So it's them coming in and out and Carlino playing this hard-ass sergeant that's like asking these questions and Mike being this white knight that's kind of like gaining her trust and then Roke coming in and being the the husband of the woman that was murdered that Mike was having an affair with supposedly. Um, but the, I guess the fly in the ointment of their plan is there's this young girl named Gloria who lives in the apartment who's has like an adolescent crush on the husband and who's telling Susie like throughout the course of the movie that hey like there's no cop car outside like it's just the same three guys that keep him back so she then sends them away on an errand to get the doll at this other place um, and her husband's studio um, and then sets it up where basically she knocks out all the lights in the apartment um, Mike sort of turns where he's on her side and is going to try and let her go um but then gets murdered by rote and um 
Carlino is murdered off screen by Rote. Um, and then the best part of the movie is Alan Arkin stalking this blind woman through her apartment as she finds ways to like turn out the lights and then she soaks him in gasoline um, so he can't light a match and really tense scene where he manages to get over to the refrigerator this ice box that's the um what's 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 the gun thing the law about if a gun appears on in scene one and has check to off, check off yeah, yeah. check off's gun mm-hmm. so this refrigerator which is the check off's gun of the whole thing where the ice box needs to be defrosted and um eventually she manages to stab wrote um he then <laughs> one of the more ridiculous like hammy acting scenes i think maybe ever um alan arkin like pulling himself across the floor by stabbing the knife that was previously in his guts um like into the floorboards like pull himself towards mm-hmm. her um and ends up pulling the refrigerator down on himself and dying and then her husband comes mm-hmm. home and um, she's rescued so it's a it's a feel-good ending um so it's it suffers from a lot of the things that i find to be kind of silly with um I would say maybe pre-psycho thrillers is probably the best way to put it, or like around that era where Hitchcock completely changes the entire genre of the psychological thriller and really ushers in the beginning of like the psychological horror movie. Um, So there's still some goofiness here that you see in things um, like other movies of the, the era, but Alan Arkin is fantastic in this movie as an unctuous little weaselly heel that has no problem murdering someone to get what he needs and is really perfectly balanced by um, the Mike character, uh, Richard Richard Krenner character, um, who's a criminal more by circumstance than Mm -hmm. by, I don't know, design maybe like it it feels like he's a guy that's just kind of been stuck being a criminal and has no way out of it and even in this point it's just like in the beginning it's just trying to leave like he doesn't want to have anything to do with it but then he has his fingerprints all over everything and wrote you know convinces him to stay um so there's a really good play off of that and then audrey hepburn who just brings like her natural um kind of waifish charm uh stiff upper lip like character characterization that she's plays in like almost every role but she's like really charming and um it's still it's it's maybe a little too pre-feminist in that respect where like a lot of her agency comes from luck rather than her own ingenuity Mm. um and it takes her a really long time i think to figure out like what's going on and um, she comes off as kind of like airheaded sometimes, but it still is a really good performance. And that last scene with her, like gaining the upper hand and gaining the courage to basically like attack back at these people that have invaded her home, um, makes it really tense. Uh, it's really well filmed in the dark, um, taking advantage of the fact that she's blind and like only showing you things in like small flashes of light or, you know, again, like lighting that last scene just by the interior light of the ice box is brilliant like it's a really great scene where he's illuminated in this like pale like bluish light and she's frantically trying to get out and you know that he has the upper hand and then um him basically taking her to the 
bedroom to murder her where she's like secreted the knife and then stabs him and just the fact that you don't know the first time you see the movie like what's happened in that scene it really um gives us some impact when he collapses down with like a butcher knife sticking out of his stomach um so in hindsight like when i was watching this this week to prepare for the podcast i was thinking like this really isn't a paranoid psychological thriller only because you know way more than the main character in this movie knows like as a viewer you know far more than audrey hepper knows about what's going on you know in those circumstances but i think the thing that makes it successful as a film is that you're rooting for her to discover these things and it's like a really good cat and mouse game between the criminals who are trying their best to cover who they are and like there's small mistakes in the way they say things or the way things are phrased or information that they have that they shouldn't have or just the sheer like coincidental nature of everything that happens in a small period of time but it's set up really well and again the performances i think really carry it and especially of the three um the three heavies in the movie do a really good job of um of carrying their their roles so yeah yeah where you were you were uh impressed by arkin i was i was really impressed by krenna in this and maybe it's only because i know him from the rambo movies mostly yeah i i was really impressed i i think what it is is <laughs> him as a criminal has a one sympathy to some degree or maybe a conscious conscience and he's also has an air of sophistication to him and i think that's what makes him interesting particularly when paired with the kind of low life inscrutable like you know arkin character yeah. um <clears throat> A question so I was going to ask oh. you about this was, do you think that it could still count, though, because her feeling, putting her, because, uh, I don't want to say this, I mean, there's a cheapness to this movie in the sense that, like, I think the premise is really good of this, about, you know, this con being run on a blind woman, and and that last scenes, you know, is probably where this whole idea develops, my guess. Um, but they make her so sympathetic to where, like you said, you're rooting for her that don't you think with her paying attention to those little things that she's noticing that it's like her paranoia is palpable almost. Yes. And that it transfers to the viewer. And couldn't that in some ways be like some sort of like subsection of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's still a fine inclusion on the list. I just think that if you go by the the very specific definition that you asked me to give, it doesn't necessarily fit hundred percent, but I mean, it's the performances that make this movie mm-hmm. like give you that feeling of paranoia because you want her. It's like, come on, just like figure it out or, you know, get away from these people. Like just get out of this house. And, um, let me ask you this question because i was thinking about this when i was watching it do you think that lucas and spielberg were inspired by um the arkin character when they made tote in indiana jones hmm that is like the look the glasses the dress you know because um wrote is wearing like a tight black leather um what do you call that like quarter trench or whatever it is um not not really a pea coat but like a 
like a car coat kind of with his gloves and his um thick like inscrutable glasses and he's got that like straight across the bangs like nazi haircut kind of thing going on i was just i was watching it last night and I, was, I was thinking like i wonder if they saw this movie and thought yeah like that's we want yeah. to recreate that um somehow definitely could be yeah i mean i yeah i i didn't put that together or think that but um i i can see i can definitely see what you're saying yeah so anyway so it's it's a movie that i can see why it would have been really popular um when it came out because it was there's definitely a huge element of danger to this movie um that i think is not necessarily in a lot of american wide releases to this point but again, like it's so overshadowed, I think, in the subsequent years by other movies, even like when Psycho, like the next year or something like that, right? Or the same yeah, year? Psycho's way before. Uh, Psycho is like 60. What is this, 67? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, 67. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you still had like this was. This was. um. It's like you're not putting Hepburn in Psycho. Like, I mean, it, th- this was a stage play initially that was released in and it, 66, and it, and it feels, feels like, like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like Terrence <clears throat> Young is directing this. This is the guy who's, like, directing, like, Bond movies. I mean, th- this is this is completely cookie-cutter mainstream. It just so happens to be, overall, a really engaging movie, I think. Like, for being so kind of, like, Great. you know, cookie-cutter. Um, yeah, it's still a good movie. I just don't know that... I think as time goes on, this movie kind of loses some of its impact and it becomes more of an artifact rather than like a classic. Um, whereas there's other movies uh, from around this time that I think carry more weight in terms mm-hmm. of their importance. So, sure. One yeah, that we're going to talk I... about next. <laughs> well, that the next one. Oh, yeah. Wait, I don't remember what's next. Yeah, we'll figure it out when we get there. <laughs> um, yeah, I I thought this was an enjoyable movie, having never seen it before. But it definitely feels like an artifact. And the only other thing I want to say about this movie is God, the husband character, is like bothering me so much in this. What, fucking leather face. Like, he's such a schmuck. And that whole ending, really, the very end of it, like, really bothered me, where he's just, like, standing there and is, like, like, come to me or whatever, and she has to make, forces her to walk across the damn room to him, and it's like, ugh, God. You need to be the world champion number one blind girl. Right. Right. Awful. Awful. Yeah, he's a scumbag. Well, can I come with you? Well, you know, you'll just slow me down. Mm -hmm. I'll be home quicker if you don't come. Like, that really gives, but it's I think it's important that that happens because if he's the perfect husband, there's not any believability into her immediately, like having some suspicion that he's cheating on. Sure. Sure. And I think that like the fact that they set it up in a way where there's some plausible, you know, realm of plausibility that he could be having an affair because of his long disappearances and the fact that, oh, well, she never showed up or, you know, all those things. Right. So moving on. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm moving on. I was pulling up the list. <laughs> I know I want to talk about this movie for another 10 minutes, Frank. <laughs> oh. Um, all right. So and, and I gotta I gotta I gotta 
gotta go slow here um you and your foreign movies so number four on your list is Les Diabolique it is released in 1955 it is directed by Henri Georges Clouzot it stars Simone Signoret Vera Clouzot Paul Maurice and Charles Vanel it has a 96 percent from critics and a 93% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about this one and uh, why you put it on the list? So from a completely, I guess, just cinematic point of view, this is probably the best movie on this list. Um, definitely a classic of uh, French cinema and one of the better um, pre-70s psychological horror movies made. Um, it involves a love triangle of sorts between this brutal headmaster of this kind of middling um, boys school in Paris um, his wife who's the financial backing for the school but has heart problems and is frail and just kind of like cowed by his um, whatever like his outward demeanor um, and then the woman that he's, he's having an affair with who's one of the teachers in the school um and who also is friends with the wife, who both of them openly recognize that the affair is being committed. Um, and the other teachers in the school know that the affair is happening and they just let it go because they're so afraid of this man that they can't, you know, like the the wife is afraid to leave him. The mistress gets beat by him. One of my favorite lines in the movie happens within the first 10 minutes, which is um, one of the other teachers in the school says, uh, what is it? It's the chase, the chase woman finds inspiration just before dawn or something like that, because mm -hmm. he heard her getting like beat up at three o'clock in the morning when the headmaster came home drunk. Um, or getting fucked. I don't know. I mean, she has a black eye, so it could be both. Um, so... The two women, mostly spurred by Nicole, I think is her name, right, is the the, the, the mistress. Um, yes, Christina is the wife. Yeah. Nicole concocts a plan where they're going to murder. Um, fuck, I need to look up his name just so I don't have to. Michelle? Yeah, Michelle or Miguel, depending yeah. on which one of them. Um, because Christine is from uh, Venezuela. Right. So the plan is that they're going to basically knock him out and drown him in the bathtub and then sink his body into this like unused pool that's in the back of the grounds. Um, so that when his body floats to the surface, it'll look like he fell in drunk because he's notorious for being intoxicated and people think that it was natural causes. So, and it takes about, I would say like 40 minutes to get to the point where they're actually like doing their, like carrying out their plot, like somewhere around there. Cause I was paying attention to it this time. Um, I've seen this movie probably like three or four times, I mm -hmm. think at least. So pretty familiar with what happened in it. Um, so right from the beginning, body never surfaces in the pool. They have the pool drain. There's no body there. And then there's small things that start to happen that, begin to make both of them very paranoid as to like what actually occurred um like his suit comes back from the dry cleaners people mention having talked to him there's a room that he rented that you know concierge said that he was just that and both of them 
you know are becoming like more and more paranoid about like what's happening there's a school picture that's taken like a class picture where his like spirit is kind of seen in the background so there's almost like a like a slight gothic horror element to the whole thing um and in the end it turns out that he's still alive and it was him and nicole that were conspiring against christine um so christine has a heart attack and dies and the two of them um think that they've gotten away with it but they're caught by the police um i guess basically facing like whatever the maximum sentence and weak ass francis for murder right um it's 15 to 20 years so i remember yeah 15 to 20 years right i was thinking 30 years but 15 to 20 um and then the end was in the end uh there's a kid who earlier was shooting out windows uh with a slingshot and got his slingshot taken away and in the end they're asking him like where did you get your slingshot back from and he says that you know christine gave it to me like implying that somehow her ghost is now like present there in this um this boarding school so <clears throat> i knew nothing about diabolique the first time i saw it um lay lay diabolique i guess and completely caught off guard by the fact that the dude because you kind of suspect that the guy might still be alive but you don't suspect that nicole is the one that's conspiring with him right you feel like there's something else has happened or somehow he managed to escape and it's just kind of like torturing them but then the reveal that it's really they were in on it together and they're torturing her so that she'll die so that they can get her money and then be together um is a pretty big shock i think the first time you see this movie um or maybe that's just because i was an idiot kid but really well filmed i suspect that it was um somebody else other than the husband and somebody was like playing games like knowing that they did it for some other reason um was my suspicion having never seen it before yeah. i didn't even think i didn't even think the husband was alive like necessarily so really well filmed um you have an incredible amount of empathy for both christine and nicole early in the movie um the fact that they're openly sympathetic towards each other and it's it's a really bold look at abusive relationships i think especially this early mm-hmm. in the century you know i mean you're talking pre-60s pre-70s so this is a pretty bold topic to to tackle the ideas of alcoholism and spousal abuse and gaslighting you know because he's gaslighting the shit out of christine the whole time sure um and just what a fucking like scumbag this guy is like he's brutal brutal yeah it's 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 so well written and the lines are so well delivered that there's so many times where he's just you really want to see him get his come up yes. the entire movie and dude i grew up with a narcissistic alcoholic that was verbally abusive like this guy at one point i remember very specifically uh calls her my little ruin yeah oh my god i like i like lost it like i like laughed but i I mean it's disgusting it's horrible (laughs) like this guy is the most like one of the more perfect verbally abusive husbands i've ever seen on film disgusting yeah yeah 
and the whole their relationship like you really feel a genuine connection between the two of them um and it's so sad because neither of them can like escape from i guess his his gravitational pull or however you want to say it but um just really well done and i think that makes the the twist at the end when you find out that they were conspiring with each other mm-hmm. and that he's definitely still alive it makes it that much more potent and when she dies when christine dies with a heart attack it's it's shocking that like because you're expecting her to i guess like come out of it and like be the one that like kind of triumphs over them which in a way she does i mean it's it's ultimately her death that leads to their capture mm-hmm. um or the revelation of their plot but the fact that she dies is just it's it, again it, it's a lot of very shocking things i think for 1955 mm-hmm. um and definitely a reason why this movie is considered a classic. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit. That my what I would say is that if if you've never seen um, Lady Abelique, you need to watch it. Um, it's well worth your two hours of your time. Um, the performances, the the filmmaking, like the direction, the set, like everything about it is just. Um, it's really just a it's it's a masterpiece. Like it's an amazing movie. Yeah. Um, it's it's available on Criterion Channel, I think, but definitely HBO Max. Yeah. Through the um TCM uh collaboration. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to talk about though with this movie, um, and not to sell it short by cutting it off, but like have you seen the remake of this with um I've, Chad Palmetary and five ten minutes here and there back in the day? I mean so I was so excited to see that remake because I loved um diabolique and i thought man like seeing this modern update to this movie is going to be amazing like palmetary was oh sure um pretty hot at the time because this is like like 97 i think 96 maybe when that movie Mm -hmm. comes out dude fucking trash like Mm -hmm. the most unnecessary remake of all time and so much in the realm of really bad like mid-90s horror is what they were going for more than like creepy psychological like paranoid thriller yeah i palmetary feels like he should have been perfect casting but yeah i i've just seen enough to know it wasn't very good um yeah um and one of those things where when we talk about unnecessary remakes, it's just let's go back to last week with the Evil Dead, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're taking the basic idea and you're doing something so different with it that it makes it worthwhile and it makes it worth watching, you know. And this movie is like this remake. is all basically the same beats but just filmed with this like like the cinematic equivalent of like purple prose basically and it's just so embarrassing to watch and such an unnecessary thing so but again if you have two hours to spare and you know i would really recommend watching um watching diabolique it's a it's a great movie yeah i didn't i don't know if you knew this um but I wanted to talk about two things very quickly. Is one is that um, Hitchcock tried to get the rights to this, yeah, to do yep. it, and and um, Clouseau uh, beat him to the punch, <laughs> and 
the other thing is it's slightly different, but does Wages of Fear count as a paranoid thriller team? Nah. Because you know you know what's at stake in Wages of Fear. Wages of Fear is a um, survival horror movie, really. Like, mm, okay. The tension in Wages of Fear is very much a palpable central point to that movie, right? Like, mm-hmm. the nitroglycerin or whatever it is that they're um, carrying on the truck. is like the focus of that movie and then you know the lines of tension come off from that to the men in it and the environment Mm -hmm. but you know what's at stake the entire time and there's never any question about what could happen if it goes wrong right right whereas i think in like a paranoid thriller you're questioning the entire time is there a threat like is there really any danger am I reading too much into what's happening? You know, and I, I think in Diabolique, they build it perfectly because it's just small things at first. I mean, obviously the body being gone is a big thing, but then it's sure. like, oh, well, you know, we saw him yesterday or he was here asking us to do this or, you know, I saw him chastise this student. And it's all things where you could think like, well, maybe they were just thinking about like the day before or, they were mistaken or you know and it, it it builds it so well that you're never quite sure what the real threat of that movie is until it's actually happening and at that point it's too late right not that you can do anything as a viewer anyway but you know it's it, it's too late for you to like it just hits you it, it catches you off guard mm-hmm. so wages of fear though amazing fucking movie and yeah. i'm just waiting for the day though I've, I've seen it once i loved it i'm just waiting for the day somehow you put it on a list again but yeah i don't know I would like to, I would like to put it on the list where I think it. Shitty jobs list or something. I don't know. Coal miner's daughter wages of fear. Coal miner's daughter. That's another good one that I like a lot. Yeah, it's a good movie. All right, number three on your list is The Parallax View from 1974. It is directed by Alan J. Pakula. It stars Warren Beatty, Paula Prentice, William Daniels, Hume Crone, and Earl Hinman. has a 90% from critics and a 78% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So you want to tell us a little bit about this and why you put it on the list? Is it really said Pakula? Yes. I've said Pakula my entire life. So have I until we did the podcast and, I don't know, some movie of his was on here like last year and... Huh. I found that it was Pakula. Well, I don't like that. It's Pacula to me. <laughs> like um, Dracula? Yeah, Rhymes exactly. With Dracula. <clears throat> yeah, or, you no, know, it's like Scott Bakula. <laughs> it's Pacula. <laughs> right, with a P. Um, so Parallax View is a um, paranoid uh, government conspiracy movie. Um, there's a senatorial candidate in Seattle, Washington, um, popular, um, presumed front runner for the presidential nomination at some point, uh, during a rally in the late sixties is assassinated. Um, the assassin is immediately caught, but there's another man that had a gun that was present that escaped, um, that people saw, but then there was no evidence of it. And 
years later, what is it, like seven years later, I think, or six years later, uh, it turns out that several people that were there and were witnesses have died. And they've all died under what would be normally considered either just accidental circumstances or natural circumstances. Um, but this woman who um, happened to be dating Warren Beatty's character at the time that the assassination occurred believes that there's a conspiracy against them where all the people that were there that were witnesses are being murdered to just eliminate any loose ends. So Beatty plays this, and I really want to talk about Warren Beatty in this time period, like after we talk about the movie description, because mm -hmm. to me, I mean, obviously he's the central character in the movie, but to me, it's his performance that's the most interesting thing mm -hmm. about this movie in a lot of ways. And it's sure. just really well filmed and everything, but just, yeah. Um, so Beatty blows her off. Like, you know, you're just, you're, you're being paranoid. You're crazy. She wants him to go away with her so they can whatever, but he doesn't believe her. And she ends up dying of a drug overdose basically and what is it barbiturates and alcohol or something like that mm -hmm. leads to like a car accident where she dies right. and Beatty immediately realizes that this is bullshit because um even though they've been broken up like he knows that this isn't like that she wouldn't do that so he goes to his editor um Hume Crone right is who plays the editor yep. Mm -hmm. um to try and convince him to let him investigate this assassination more so he starts to unravel like a much larger web of conspiracy that there really is something that's being covered up um there's an attempt made on his life and he finds out that there's this agency called the parallax corporation or parallax company i can't remember exactly what it is um that's basically uses a uh shit narcissistic psychopath right mm -hmm. tests to try and find people that would make ideal yes. assassins right um in order to take out like prominent public figures that um could possibly run for president and um they're there to change the course basically of like political history to the favor of whatever the people that are paying them so Beatty uncover yeah Beatty uncovers all this and um gets a I don't know if job is the right word, but basically gets brought on by the parallax company to be an assassin and is going to use that to, you know, prevent the assassination of this other, um, fuck, who's that actor that plays the other politician? Cause he's really great in it for the brief period of time that he's in it. Um, oh. Which one? Yeah. I don't know. I don't anyway. know any of these actors it's edward winter as senator okay Jameson. gotcha um so yeah, they're in yeah. okay sorry one of the to <laughs> me one of the more iconic scenes of like thrillers from this time period so they're in this arena and Beatty has gotten locked Beatty goes is up in the scaffolding and has gotten locked there by these other agents of the Parallax Corporation. Um, and then the senator gets assassinated, and he's the person that everybody sees. So he tries to get away, um, but ends up getting shot and killed, and then ultimately framed as the lone actor in the assassination of this um this senator. So that scene is amazing so there's a group of kids 
<clears throat> that are singing behind they're 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 rehearsing for this um like awards gala or whatever so there's this group of kids that are singing um he's on like a like a little golf cart thing that he's driving through when he gets shot and then the golf cart in long long shot just like kind of careens off into these tables it's it's a really brilliantly filmed scene and really tense because Beatty is like able to hide himself at some points up in the catwalks but then gets spotted a couple of times and ultimately as he's making a break for the door is when he gets um when he gets shot and killed um it's another one where I think you know a little more here that there is something amiss, like there's something wrong with what's going on because of like, but it still is, is there's still a lot of uncertainty, especially up until you get to maybe like halfway through the movie as to whether or not he's reading too much into it or just how big of a conspiracy is it? Like where, how far does it go? Is he, making too much of it and Hume Crone is actually a really good foil to Beatty's character of trying to like talk him down sort of the entire time Mm -hmm. um so what I want to say about Warren Beatty's character here is like we we talked about this when we did McCabe McCabe and Mrs. Miller um I am not a huge Warren Beatty fan in general but there's this very specific time period where Beatty is playing these characters that are handsome and cocksure and just 100% wrong in the way they're approaching a situation right that is like his exact perfect role is to play that character Mm -hmm. because he's so handsome and he has such a great presence but it's like that egocentric idiocy of the man is just like that he thinks he knows more than he actually does or he thinks that he's in a better position than he is that makes his fall, you know, like his whatever. Um, when his hubris like ultimately leads to his his downfall, it just it makes it that much more powerful. Um, and I really like him a lot in this role. I think his mm-hmm. um I think it's a really fantastic performance. Um I think that he plays it's I was trying to think of how to describe this today. And the only way I can think of it is it's, it's hundred percent. Like you're so vain Warren Beatty. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like he's walking around, like he basically owns everything. And it's the same thing in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, and I really love like those performances out of him. And I, <clears throat> I don't know what it is about him later in his career that I kind of sour on a little bit. I, I think maybe it's just like, I think it's the Robert Redford syndrome to me, which is like when every older woman figure in your life is talking about how handsome and sexy a man is, is it kind of just turns you on him, you know? Yeah. Um, and everybody it's loves somebody that's trying to kids. maintain that image way too long. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's like, it's like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be an elder statesman of Hollywood and this revered actor, but also like keep the sex appeal that they had in their twenties and thirties. And it makes them kind of like, I don't know, like it turns you off. Yeah. Like definitely. But here it's perfect. And that's why I like Beatty so much in, um, 
uh, Bullworth is because I don't think he's trying. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. He's sleeping with Halle Berry in that movie, but I don't think he's trying to pull off the sex symbol thing like at all in that. I think it's actually like a passion project of his. So, um, so, but the one of my favorite moments in this movie is it's maybe 10 minutes left in the film and he's dropped down and kind of hidden in like a sub section of one of the catwalks and he stands up and one of the kids who's like dropped down to get away from the gunfire sees him and just screams like he's there he's there there he is and Beatty gets this look on his face that's like the perfect like I'm done for expression and he mm-hmm. sells it so well like it's such a great Number one, Pakula like films it perfectly where it's an undershot. He's lit from below by like the harsh, whatever, like can lights of mm-hmm. the of the arena. And it's just like his face just drops almost imperceptibly, but from like kind of not stoic, but like focused to just defeated. And it's 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 amazing. It's a really um really great shot. Yeah, so. that, that that whole ending is shot extremely well. Like um, the cinematography in the in the the cinematography is really good throughout. Like um, I think it does borrow a lot from from something like the conversation at times, but I um, I definitely uh, think that like the wide open space of the arena, like when the guys assassinating and stuff like that, is filmed really well. Like yeah. I. I, I it, it gives you this kind of like again it's like you know we could like point out like specific scenes and it's like I so wish sometimes we could like show these scenes to people but it like it gives you this kind of voyeuristic take on the assassination by filming it so long away that like you still feel removed from the entire thing so that you're not up it's not up close and personal it's very like distant to you uh, when you see the slumped over, see him slumped over, like, you know, on that, like, you know, like, kind of RV vehicle or whatever. And um, so it's never personalized to that point. It's still like, you know, these things that are happening that feel out of control and you can't do anything about. I mean, I cannot help but think that it's filmed that way because of something like the Zabruder film and like the distance that, oh yeah, yeah you yeah. know, that's filmed at like to some degree. But it's um it's a really interesting way in which they film the 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 cool of uh, films this and i um i was really impressed with this movie all overall i hadn't seen it and um what's interesting is that the guy that did the cinematography um on this movie uh worked with coppola uh on the godfather movies he also worked with Pakula on clute which was the other yeah, clute which was the other movie of his that we talked about um yeah i agree with everything you said about Beatty. i i think i find this movie really interesting just in the sense of when it was made and um being so being a movie that's so close to the time of the kennedy assassination like only like you know an 11 years difference but obviously all of this stemming from the Kennedy assassination uh you don't start with the committee and end with the committee that like the yeah. oh yeah I forgot about assassin, that. like <clears throat> yeah that that star chamber shit of just the 
the group of figures like sitting in these um whatever like elaborate wooden chairs but like completely in darkness is uh mm-hmm. it's 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 pretty brilliant yeah and i think it's mimicked a lot like you know in in uh, subsequent years uh decades but maybe to the point of parody at times but still um i the other really last thing that i found interesting about this um is the look my notes real quick um oh is the idea that this guy keeps investigating this and allows himself to get deeper and deeper into something that he doesn't fully understand like and, and you mentioned this a little bit with like your estimation of like Beatty's really good roles but it's like yes he's cocksure but it's like I I always find protagonists with these kind of inscrutable motivations really interesting and it's why I find the passenger interesting it's a similar thing where it's like I understand like the guy's trying to like you know he thinks there's a conspiracy he's trying to figure out the conspiracy but allowing himself to get involved to the degree that he does and not realizing that he's a dupe is fascinating to me because he's he's smart enough to be able to put these pieces together outside of himself but also can't see like when he's engaged in it he can't recognize the so here's he's a sucker here's what i think his motivation is this is how i've always viewed his character is that he had the ability to do the right thing and didn't do the right thing Mm -hmm. and can't stand the fact that he was wrong and is trying to correct that by like not giving up on it right and I know that he's right. an investigative reporter yeah. and, you know, he's got this already. Yeah, I can see that. But even in the beginning when he's um, when he's arrested and he's getting in the argument with the cops in the police station, it's not about him because what's he investigating for? Like corruption or something like that or abuse mm-hmm. of power or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not about him like doing his job. It's about him being right. It's about him getting the last word. And with his with his ex-girlfriend it's him getting the last word and telling her that she's paranoid and she'll be fine and you know you're crazy Mm. and then it's because he was wrong it's him forcing himself to like these extremes to try and prove that he's right that he knows what he's doing and in the end that's what leads to him you know leads to his death and it's um i really think it's hubris i think it's his motivating factor more than anything yeah, and I I think that it's disguised as gallantry or mm-hmm. tenacity, but ultimately it's just you know he's just an egomaniac, egomaniacal fuck. Yeah, that absolutely. hides it behind like a veneer of you know charm and sure, whatever sure. like suaveness or something. And and I and I and I again back to your original point about Beatty is i think he's really good at those roles yeah well i think because it's i think it's sure. a point, a point I, I don't i don't know more baby but i think i think that's probably right yeah um don't have to stretch it too far so um walked into a party like he was walking onto a yacht yep and just quickly when i looked up uh what's his name that you mentioned um uh who was it? ed edward winner like i recognize him immediately because it's a match callback um from this past week's being chagrin uh because he played uh colonel flag um it's like oh right that guy i know who you're talking about <clears throat> good old mash good old mash all right you ready to move on to number two please
Okay, number two on your list is 1997's The Game, directed by David Fincher. Stars Michael Douglas, Sean Penn, Deborah Kara Unger, James Reborn, and Peter Dona. It is a 77% from critics and 84% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about this and why you put it as number two on the list? So... Unlike every other movie on this list, this is a very, very much a slickly produced, like Hollywood action film. But at its core, I think is especially the first time you see it, a really effective paranoid thriller. Um, so the basic premise is that um, Douglas is a wealthy investment banker. Um, in the opening scenes. Of the movie over the opening credits it's established that um douglas's father at a young age when he was young uh committed suicide and he sort of took over the the family business and has turned it into this like basically global empire um he has no real connection with anyone um an interesting comparison in this character is a movie that came out around the same time a couple years later uh that we talked about on the quick cage and the family man. So it is very similar in, mm. in theme where almost like an Ebenezer Scrooge type character. Right. Um, so. Well, it's Gordon Gecko. Like, yeah, it's true. Put it through the runner. Yeah. Uh, so Douglas meets with uh, the Sean Penn character, Conrad, who's his brother, um, who's at various points been like uh, a drug addict and just not anywhere the same as, they're very different, like polar opposites, but there still is a definite amount of affection that comes through between like their, their scenes together. Um, so it's, um, fuck, what's Michael Douglas's character's name? Nicholas. Yeah. Yeah. So Nicholas Van Orton, um, it's his birthday and Conrad has gotten him this thing from this company called, uh, C CRS. Is that right? Yes. Um, and we'll tell him what it is. He's like, just call him, just talk to him. Um, I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy it. Like, I think that you'll appreciate it. So Douglas or Van Orton eventually relents and goes and takes this personality test that's implied takes him a really long time to do for this company. Um, that says that it's just basically a game that he's been signed up for. Um, they put him through a series of like psychological examinations and, finally at the end um he leaves and then the next day he gets a call um on his unlisted cell phone from the company saying that he's been rejected from participating in the game uh due to his test performance which really pisses him off because you know there's this pseudo like there's like this alpha male who's always like the top guy in any situation being told that he's not like worthy of participating mm -hmm. so when he comes home there's um a crumpled body laying in his driveway in the same position that his father was when he jumped off the roof and committed suicide. And it's a porcelain doll that has a key in its mouth. Um, so then the movie starts where his television broadcast of the nightly news gets interrupted and he's given instructions. And then um, small things start to happen. Like he goes to uh, fire an employee and he can't open his briefcase and um, this woman, this waitress knocks drinks into him a couple of times and 
Um, then he's given a note that he needs to follow her. And from that point on, it's this nightmarish evening where he's consistently being tricked and double-crossed and on the run and <clears throat> trying to, like, get away from these people that are apparently, like, seemingly trying to kill him, that have guns. Um, Conrad shows up again at one point and is all freaked out saying, like, I was only doing what they told me to do it's gone too far and we can't get away from it um he ends up kind of running with the waitress the dara the deborah unger um character and then he finds out that they're all actors like the guy that gave him the test and she's an actor and but then she double crosses him again and eventually like he ends up in a like a Mexican prison basically and has no money and has to like he's dropped to his lowest point where he's trying to offer people $18 to drive him to San Francisco um so he goes like it, they clear out his bank accounts and he has no money and it seems like everyone's like kind of conspiring against him so there's a really great element of because you as a viewer don't know is it a game or is it really like because they frame it at one point it's a conspiracy to basically rob him under the auspices of playing this game and um he ends up going home at one point after his house has been foreclosed and everything's cleared out of it um and getting a revolver that was hidden in a book um and ends up confronting uh these people at the building that the crs company owns um and believes that he shoots uh conrad like he comes out and it's his birthday party and he fires a shot and conrad crumples to the ground and then michael douglas jumps off the side of the building and ends up falling through an atrium and into a really large uh inflatable i don't know what you call it like um whatever like those things the stuntmen jump into that like absorb their impact right um and it turns out that it was all a game and that conrad is alive and um it really is like the ebenezer scrooge story in a lot of ways and that like his heart's been softened and he's learned to appreciate the other people in his life and um the last scene is him asking uh cara deborah unger or however you say her fucking name out on a date and she's like yeah let's go get coffee um this movie absolutely strains the bonds of credulity. Like, there's a lot of things in this movie that are just completely ridiculous that would never happen in real life. But it's all played so straight by the people in it that it's it's still effective. Um, Douglas particularly um, is super paranoid the entire time and his kind of like unhinging mentally is just really interesting to watch um and the first time you see this movie it it's a movie of diminishing returns in a lot of ways and it's it's number two because i think it's an interesting comparison to the number one movie and i think that the first time you see it it's it's really effective mm -hmm. in the sense that you don't know what's real and what's not real and they really pay it off well to the point where up until he's like getting cleaned off and you know being lifted off of this airbag 
you think that it's it still could all possibly you know you you think that it's it could be real like it's it's a really good reveal at the end um again it's it's not a movie that's very believable in a lot of ways but it invests itself so fully in its world building and like you can suspend your disbelief and still enjoy it i think a lot um and again really great performances by the characters in it Mm -hmm. um I think that Douglas particularly is great in this movie. Um, and the supporting cast is really good. And uh, Kara Unger. Yeah, I even like Sean Penn in it. Yeah. Um, Sean Penn playing like this aloof, like hippie kind of wastrel that's sort of found um, new meaning in life from having played the game himself. Um, and just the way that they introduce things and then pull them back and then let you kind of see the truth but then obscure it in a way and um just really a really well done movie um and definitely if you've never seen it which i guess we just like ruined it (laughs) um the first time you see it it's it's really effective and really well done um and not really much else to say about it i mean again it's it's played very much in a big budget like hollywood style um it's funny because like i i watched this movie with with very little knowledge about outside from like seeing trailers because what it's 97 right so mm-hmm. no the internet not really there um to give you spoilers or anything Um very impressed with the first time i saw it and i was really surprised by how poorly it did at the box office in comparison to uh seven because we really thought that it was going to be like this huge um huge movie since it was fincher's follow-up um but still really well done uh, yeah, very very, very, very well modest directed. modest earning right like yeah, yeah like i remember looking at that and it's like 30 40 million dollars right um but yeah yeah just a really enjoyable film um it all takes place at night, and Fincher does a really good job of using unnatural light, like um, neon and halogens and um, uh, whatever you call them, like the big phosphorescent tube lighting and stuff, to really present this kind of grimy backstreet like view of everything. Um, and definitely, like Douglas does a great job of not being being enough of a dick where like you want to see him get his comeuppance but not too much of a dick where you want to see him like fail necessarily like he definitely has that Ebenezer Scrooge like I've seen the error of my ways moments a few times um and I think it's really effective just uh yeah, I think that's probably the one like part that I differ with you a little is I just think he's a prick like throughout. And while I'm engaged in the story and I'm engaged in the action and the thriller aspects of it, like I I kind of just want to see him get his come up and like overall. And honestly, to me it's the most disappointing thing about the end of the movie, which I think is like almost close to objectively the most disappointing thing about the movie is the reveal that it's all a game and that there's no like massive conspiracy it just fall, kind of falls flat to me 
um as an ending and it did back then and it does now um even though i still think as a as a movie it works really well and it's really engaging having not remembered so many things in rewatching it all these years later um but it's like maybe maybe it's just like my politics or something like that like just kind of like seeing this rich asshole like you know like suddenly have this like scrooge moment where it's like oh like every like now that i've been through the game like uh, my life has changed i'm like a better person or something like that it's just kind of eh, okay like you know and it's like does almost dying make people better probably maybe like but yeah like so i'll agree with you in this aspect is that 25 years later it's more difficult to watch the idea that this man is so wealthy that laws can be broken and entire like hundreds of people can be roped into this conspiracy in a major city over the course of a night just to give a man a birthday present right is really kind of a disgusting right idea but yeah. in 97 like right that's we didn't not have, necessarily we didn't sensibilities that sure right like what you're thinking and i agreed. agreed here's here's a couple counterpoints i'll make to what you said and why i like michael douglas's character so much in this movie the first is that even though he's a colossal prick still friendly to his housekeeper still respectful to his assistant and still shows an element of love towards his brother. Mm-hmm. Even though there's a sense of annoyance, it still is that, like, you're my brother. I'm here for you because I love you. And I genuinely care about you, you know, even though I don't agree with your life choices. To the point where he goes along with it because it means so much to his brother for him to do it. You right. know what I mean? Not Not because he has to, but because he wants to do this thing for his you know his wastrel of a brother that he still loves very much the scene where they're going down the stairs and sean penn is basically telling him like you're a piece of shit you don't care about anybody but yourself like you've never cared about anybody and you know like you basically have lost like everything that dad was and him saying like who else who else was going to do it like there was nobody else that was going to take that bullet and I had to take it. And that's why I am. And the scene where he's standing in the diner, where he's trying to get the dry, to get the ride back to San Francisco, where he's wearing that white linen suit. That's just completely caked in like mud and shit. And his perfectly coiffed hair is like falling down on his face and his nose is broken and he's dirty and disheveled. And he's just like standing there like this hobo, like I, I got eighteen dollars. Like I just need some help. Like can somebody help me, please? This guy who, an hour before, was telling an old family friend that like basically you failed and you need to take the consequences. And this is business. This isn't personal. Like being broken down to the point where he's got to, you know, beg for assistance from strangers. It's just um. I just like it a lot. I, I I think it's a really great performance, and I think it's oh, it's absolutely a great performance, no doubt. Just what makes it such a such a good role, I think, for him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And I think that if it's played any differently than that, I think the movie absolutely falls apart. Like if you if you want to see him get shot or you want to see him die, you just want to see him change. You know, you want to see him like recognize like the good things in life that he has and not be such a miserable prick all the time. And I think that it effectively does that. So I think that's where the paranoid part and why I put it at number two. And also because I think it's a good, almost like um, in cold blood, like outside the other door comparison to the number one movie. Um, But yeah, really, really enjoyable. Uh, Does definitely lose. um, And I think that's the biggest thing with me. It loses something after whatever it's oh like, yeah 25 you, you, years or whatever look i really enjoyed watching this movie this time yeah i did too. Um, yeah. i had a lot of fun it was probably the most fun i had watching any of these movies mm-hmm. um sure so we we talked we we took a piss break mm-hmm. um and we talked off air about like what the list would have been otherwise and this, this would be number five on this list for me if i was just objectively ranking it um by what i think is like the the least good movie to the most good movie um but in terms of entertainment i really enjoyed it and i thought it was a lot of fun and yeah i still think it's 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 a pretty impressive um pretty impressive piece of filmmaking in the way that fincher kind of just like sort of does that carnival ride aspect to you where he's like hiding things and it's all smoke and mirrors and then the reveal at the end yeah i mean fincher fincher's an interesting cat right like and before we move on to number one i just wanted to ask you this is the third time that he appears on the podcast because we've talked about um zodiac and fight club before on the podcast so this is his third appearance as a director so he's got alien three seven panic room benjamin button social network girl with the dragon tattoo gone girl and mank is seven the only one that like potentially like maybe social network is are those the two that maybe potentially someday end up on some sort of list i wouldn't mind talking about gone girl at some point i mean i don't know what that ends up on but i i think that's a good movie it is yeah um i wasn't sure how you felt about it if we ever do most disappointing movie that didn't that least lived up to its hype i think the panic room could be on that because you, you've been on that tip since i've known you yeah uh-huh dude because we i don't know if you were part of that. i was we not marked, part of it no. we marked out so hard to the trailers for panic Room. like all of us were so stoked to see that fucking movie and to have it be as bad as it is and not even just like disappointing but like a bad film really was a it, it was it was difficult to swallow like how bad that movie was yeah because i have a I, I i have a great deal of affection for alien 3 and i think alien 3 is ruined more by the studio and the cut of the movie more than it is fincher's direction of that movie like i i think there's a lot of interesting ideas in alien 3 that just fall flat because the studio didn't have the confidence in releasing the movie that it should have been right mm-hmm. absolutely but I'm not I, the social network is a fine movie, but it's not one that I would ever really want to talk about. I thought we talked about Mank, didn't we? 
Or did we just talk about Mank? We just talked about Mank. Or maybe I don't know. on some kind of quick cage or something, maybe briefly we talked about it or something. I mean, maybe if we do another, like, docudramas movie or maybe movies that are based on things that we love, you know? So talking about, like, Citizen Kane. Because um, there's enough of those that are, you know, that around um, historical events that we're fans of, I guess. Yeah. Um, I was just curious. Um, I just put down most disappointing movies as a future podcast idea. So. Yeah. And you know, the, so, all right. So here's another way that Fincher movies can end up. Oh, his um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is really good. That's, um, it's, it's a good adaptation. Is it? Okay. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I've, I read the first of that book and I think that the Swedish version is better, but it still is fine. New me, new me rapace or whatever is, is good in it. Um, directors who impress you upon the first viewing of a movie and fall increasingly flatter upon subsequent viewings. I mean, that's a really long title and probably like untenable, but I think Fincher is definitely that dude. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I like Fight Club, but I like Fight Club less every time I see it. I think Fight Club loses a lot of its power. Maybe Fincher is just a classier Shyamalan, you know? Like, yeah. he's the guy that gets you the first time you see it because it's like, oh, crazy. Like, that's what that's what's going on. But then once you know, it just kind of, like, increasingly loses some of its potency. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. So, I mean, at that point, well, he doesn't direct all those episodes, though. It really makes me think, wonder if Mindhunter isn't the best thing that like Fincher's like directly and intensely involved in. I mean, it's pretty close. It's unfair though to me always to compare long form television to film. It's, it's, true. it's true because you can do so much more. Like the character development that happens in, um, if you if you stretch seven out to ten episodes, like. And change the principal <laughs> character, like actor. <sighs> What's in the book? Uh, he's young, man. I get it. I know. <laughs> and you gotta have Kevin Spacey talk a lot less. Right. Right. I've always maintained that that's what ruins that movie. Not not ruins it, but that's what like drops that movie out of the, the heights that it could have been and maintains for the majority of it you lose like any kind of mystique once he starts running his mouth in the back of that cat or in the back of that squad car. Well, you know what I mean? Okay. Like, I, I, I want to, I do want to move on from it, but let me ask you this question. Is he, is he the Michael Crichton of endings? Maybe. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah, the take a shit. Yeah. yeah it's possible. Like it could be the Fincher, like <laughs> can't stick the landing. Yeah. You think about a lot of those movies and yeah, like, I mean, fight club, I think he nails it only because he changes the ending. Right. But much better than Pluniac's sure, um, but written ending. I think even Zodiac, which I love, is uh, kind of like just kind of peters out towards the end of that movie. Um, I mean, obviously, because you, you can't. <laughs> like, what are you going to do with it, right? I mean, right. Um, when it's an unsolvable, it's it's not a solved case. So, yeah, that's interesting. I have to think more about that. All right, so. Number one on your list is 
Evan Passer's Cutter's Way, released in 1981. It stars John Hurd, Jeff Bridges, Lisa Eichhorn, Stephen Elliott, and Anne Dusenberry. It has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 71% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about the movie, why it's number one on the list, and... Um, yeah, like it's a little heard of movie, so I'll be interested to see if people check this out eventually. Uh, so Bridges plays um, Bone, who's a sort of aimless pretty boy that gigolo, even like you know. So I was gonna say you're 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 forcing me into this at this point, but. <laughs> When I was watching this movie um, the other day, because I wanted to watch it again, just to really have it like clear in my head when we talk about it, because there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about. I feel like it's almost, what if, um, the characters from Midnight Cowboy had not, hmm, had changed, had a slightly different trajectory to their lives. You know, because um, Bridges' Bone character is very similar to um, yeah John Voight's uh, character in Midnight Cowboy in the sense of You're right. he uses his charm and his good looks to kind of get what he wants, um, but doesn't really get anything out of it because he's just sort of living in the moment. Um, and uh, Hurd's Cutter character is this guy that's intelligent and well-spoken, but broken in a lot of ways and sort of unable to exist. Volatile. Yeah. yeah in, in the world that he's in um, sure. because of a disability, basically. I mean, you can certainly see him sitting there and saying the line and like, I'm walking here, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I think that that's, hmm. it, it, it's a really interesting. So this movie is what 81, right? Said, yeah. mm-hmm. it's very anachronistic in the sense that you're coming into a decade where and we haven't even talked about what this movie's fucking about but you're coming to the decade of excess and you know conspicuous consumption and this is the ultimate antithesis to that even though those elements are there in some of the characterization and some of the plot points this is a movie that firmly visually and tonally is set in like 1974. Mm-hmm. Um, so the premise is that um, Bone has been at this party um, ostensibly to try and sell some yachts, but has basically had sex with the wife of one of the like the people that are hosting the party and has drank and is now leaving. Um, he gets in his car, which is this rundown, you know, old model, like 1950s, whatever, something, um, drives away into a rainstorm and ends up witnessing what he believes is a murder or the disposal of a body in an alley. Um, but then the car drives away. He doesn't really get a good look. Um, he goes to pick up his friend, uh, Cutter, who's at a bar. Um, basically drunk and causing a disturbance and using racial slurs against a group of black people and 
making Rosencrantz and Guildenstern references in the middle of his like drunkenness. Um, so you find out that they're old friends that Cutter was injured in the Vietnam War to the point where he lost an eye and lost a leg. Um, he's married to Mo, who's this woman that Bone was also in love with at one point, but who ended up like Bone has like consistently like abandoned this woman and left her, so she ended up married to Cutter. Um, Cutter subconsciously and maybe slightly consciously realizes they're still love and attraction between the two of them but he loves them both so much that he kind of like lets it slide because to him he feels like there's never a chance of them like actually consummating their relationship um so they find out about the murder of this woman it's a um, young like 16 or 17 year old girl that was on her way home from cheerleading practice and got murdered and left in a dumpster um bone is briefly like a suspect but then not a suspect and really just they're trying to get a description out of them so they go to this what is it, like a cinco de mayo parade or something founding day. um what is it founding day founding day right sorry it's just this parade mm-hmm. and this man rides past on a horse and bone says that's the guy like that's the guy i saw in the rain that night and it turns out that it's basically the patriarch of this town like this man who's incredibly wealthy and controls everything including the place where bone works um and so then it's a lot of elements of things like like something like the parallax view where you brought it up off air but something like chinatown where cutter becomes obsessed with the idea of bringing this man down and then a lot of it is um, almost by proxy of him fighting back against the way that he's been treated since coming back from Vietnam and sort of the idea that these rich people can always get out of everything while, you know, people like him are left to suffer. Um, the sister of the girl that got killed gets roped into it and she's all on board with this conspiracy idea that, you know, this man was responsible for her death and she wants to bring him down. And the most interesting part of the movie to me is the Jeff Bridges character of Bone. And it's this person that's got like this incredible survivor's guilt from everyone that he meets. Like he went to college while Cutter went to Vietnam and Cutter came back broken. He left Mo and Mo ended up married to Cutter and now she's miserable and sad and they could have been together and he genuinely like has affection for her, but he's such a like just non-committal wastrel in a lot of ways that he can't do it like he can't bring himself he can't bring himself to leave her so he's a constant like reminder to her of what she could have but he also can't bring himself to like do what he wants to do which is you know basically be with her and then the guilt of he could have stopped the person that was abandoned, like disposing of the body and could have confronted him and could have done anything and basically opted to stay in his car in the rain and let the guy go more or less. And so now he's got the survivor's guilt with the sister too, um, where she's trying to like have sex with him just to get him on board. And he can't even do that because he's like always so consistently disgusted with himself. And yet, unwilling or unable to kind of change his ways to be a better person um so eventually like they go through a lot of 
there's a point where Bridges is pretending to go along with this conspiracy and then reveals that um, it was a lie, basically, that he was just kind of playing along with them to sort of fulfill their needs, um, but really wasn't going along with them at all. And so Cutter and the sister go off by themselves. Um, and then Bone and this is a part where like the really so the whole thing is the the whole paranoid part is the idea that um cutter is convinced that there's this conspiracy being committed by this this wealthy man so the other part of it too though is that you never and you and i kind of i think differ on this interpretation but you never know for sure what actually happened was he responsible for this girl's death? Did he murder this girl? Is there a conspiracy to cover it up? You don't definitively know any. I don't think the viewer definitively knows anything, right? Yeah, it's it's implied, but it's never like mm-hmm. overtly stated, which I think is one of the beauty, one of the most beautiful things about this movie, right? So Cutter, <coughs> pardon me, Cutter and the sister disappear to go investigate. Um, continue to investigate this guy and bone goes home to mo after mo and cutter have had this falling out and cutters basically said i'm leaving you like i'm never coming back and bone has sex with her and she says to him before they have sex you can't just leave me in the morning like you have to be here when i wake up that's the only thing i ask is that you're here when i wake up and this non-committal fuck like just walks out on her in the morning Mm -hmm. before she and she's awake, like you see in the scene, but he thinks she's asleep or he doesn't even care because what he's trying to do is just save himself from the discomfort of having to talk about his feelings, you know, after the night. Um, and it's really brilliantly filmed. And again, like, you know, he has this guilt where he should have been the one with her, but he doesn't have the wherewithal or the courage to actually do it. You know, when he has the opportunity, like he falls short. Um, and the implication is he's fallen short like most of his life, I think, in living up to his expectations or responsibilities. So he gets invited to this. He goes to this party um, being hosted by, is it Cobb? Is that what the guy's name is? Or Cord? J.J. Cord. J.J. Right. Cord. J.J. Yeah. Cord. Mm-hmm. Um, and confronts him. And Cord... The way that I interpret this, the end of this movie, is that Cord says, I'm not going to tell you that I did it or didn't do it, mm-hmm. but I'm going to tell you that it doesn't matter whether right. I did or didn't because I'm going to get away with it regardless. Yes. Like it doesn't matter that this girl is dead because I'm above reproach. Like there's nothing you can do to me. Yeah. What if it were, is what he asks. Um, right. Yeah. What, yeah. what if it were true? Yeah. So Cutter has bursts through the window and is um unconscious on the ground with his gun um and at that point bone like raises up cutter's unconscious hand points the gun at cord and pulls the trigger and that's the end of the movie implying that um so implying a couple things and this is another reason why i think this is such a brilliant movie um number one bone has pushed off the responsibility of getting justice for this dead girl and for all the other things because 
the house where Cutter and Mo live burns down while they're gone and she's in it. And you never quite know, did she commit suicide? Was it an accident? Was it set up by Cord to take, you know, to take them out because they're witnesses? So Bone in the end can't even take that responsibility for this woman that he maybe loves or purports to love for his best friend who's basically sacrificed everything to try and bring justice for this other young girl whose sister was murdered in cold blood he still puts it on somebody else to actually pull the like whose finger to pull the trigger and it's just i don't know it's it's i really like bridges a lot in general like i think he's an underrated actor um and then I think he's a he, guy that if you look at his career, you certainly, yeah, it's like, it's hard to see individually, but like you look at the course of his career and he's fucking brilliant. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, he's, he's like a Samuel L. Jackson where here's a guy that's just like, would basically do anything for a time where he yeah. would just be in any movie. Sure. And some of those movies are amazing and some of those movies are trash and it's just like, it's performances like this where you see like how talented this guy is. So Number one, I love the fact that throughout the entire movie, Cutter is just unhinged. And that's another, like, John Hurd's performance there is just brilliant in this in that role. Um, I would argue that he carries the movie. As good as Bridges is. like, Yeah. Well, he's definitely the most dynamic. Yeah. Because Bridges is always, again, and I, I think it's, I think it's <clears throat> a really great way of characterizing of, of giving you depth to that character where he 100% is never willing to take responsibility or ownership for anything. And even like towards the end where he starts to kind of see that maybe they're right. He still is forcing other people. He still is abandoning at every, every turn, his ability to be responsible and mature in the situation. Yes. Yep. And it's just it's it's heartbreaking that you know because mo is a really good character um you have a lot of empathy for i think when you're watching the movie um nobody comes off as being like unrealistic i think i mean you know you look at people like she's definitely um definitely pitiable and i think there's a lot of like empathy that you can feel for well, she's the um, most sane and real. Uh, she's the most realistic and sane. She's just somebody trying to live the life. Right. Well, because... And she's got, like, a guy that's basically in arrested development and another guy who's lost his fucking mind from the war. Yeah. So, again, I... Like, I use the term survivor's guilt, and I think that that's what the movie is, like, at its core, what it's about is, is Jeff Bridges has abandoned everyone in his life in order to keep himself safe and sane and everyone else around him is broken in some way. You know, Cutter is like a completely broken man who's drinking, you know, Captain Morgan out of the bottle at like six o'clock in the morning after drinking all night. And is he really like a good friend to Cutter just because he shows up and gets him out of a bar, you know, when he's like super drunk because he still never takes any ownership of it or never like tries to get him better he just kind of like tags along because that's what he does. And it's the same thing with Mo where she wants bone to help her in a lot of ways, like to 
support either support her like romantically and in a relationship or at least support her in helping out with cutter and he continuously just makes the wrong choices um, there's a brilliant like short monologue to support your idea about the survivor's guilt when um cutter ends up telling bone at one point about how he watched the war on tv as well and how he had like three different thoughts it's like somehow it ended up being like i hate the united states after seeing like a woman with her dead like, dead woman right. or child or whatever and then it's like there is no god and eventually you end up on the idea that i'm hungry like just, which just shows how like ultimately you'll end up like focusing on self as opposed to the horrors that you see on television like yeah, yeah. but yeah so again very much for being in, in 1981 very much a movie that feels like it's firmly set in the 1970s um and really a condemnation of the things that would come after it that we kind of grew up with. So, you know, your major villain is a guy who's, and it's, it's an easy trope because, you know, it's basically Chinatown in that setup, but your villain is a guy who's wealthy. He's controlling people through his wealth and through the fact that he employs them. Um, they have another friend who's the manager of the yacht store. I don't know what the fuck you call that. That Cord owns um diabetes repair um <laughs> yeah, george, george swanson yeah is the this guy's name yeah the character the boating company that cord owns and that employs bone um so you've got this idea that like cutter is really kind of going after the guy that whether he's right or wrong about um cord's guilt it still is more about like just bringing some sense of justice to what's happened to him in his life. Mm -hmm. And he's willing Which to sacrifice. Which is why he's unreliable. Right. That's why you can't completely trust him. Is because you get the sense that, yeah, there's some kind of personal vendetta in some ways that he's trying to fulfill. Yeah. So is it trustworthy of what he's feeling or not? Like, right. But just really well done. Um, great performances all throughout it's really well directed um there's a lot of curb your enthusiasm level uncomfortable tension to this movie especially with cutter who has no social grace or restraint just like saying what he thinks um there's an amazing scene in the middle of the movie where cutter comes home drunk one night um and sees that bone is there and i think in his brain is thinking something's happened between bone and mo and smashes his car into his neighbor's car repeatedly forcing it onto the grass and then basically plays the i'm a wounded vietnam vet they're just picking on me so that the police officer that's called out will kind of just leave um really well done scene and really great performance by herd like in that point but yeah just a really I only knew about this movie because of the Criterion channel. Um, I told you to watch it because I knew it would eventually be on a list, this mm -hmm. list specifically. Um, we both really enjoyed it. I, it's not one that I've really ever heard mentioned before. So um, if you have access to Amazon Prime, because it's streaming on Prime now, um, I'm not sure if it's still on Criterion, but it was on Criterion for several months. Um, you owe it to yourself to watch it. It's just, it's it's a great movie, really great performances. Um, very much a throwback to 1970s, you know, crime 
uh, thriller drama. Um, and again, the paranoia is just that you don't ever know if Cutter is full of shit or believes what he's saying or is delusional or is 100% right. But Cord putting on the sunglasses at the end and basically saying, why did like it doesn't matter and there's nothing you can do about it it's just one of the most brilliant um brilliant endings so it's yeah, a really great movie yeah which i mean those sunglasses have to be almost like a reference to like cool hand luke or something like that i, think, I thought that too know? um like the what eyeless you know authority yeah. like or whatever well i mean it's a hundred percent like an admission of guilt without ever having to sure own that guilt which is again like cutter's point the entire time which is these people can do what they want to anyone that they want and there's nothing that ever happens to them and we have to have make them accountable for something um because he he's not necessarily i guess from like a human standpoint you know he's angry at the death of this girl but it's more just the idea that they the wealthy can always do what they want to the impoverished or the less fortunate um and get away with it and there's like nothing that can happen so but yeah really great movie yeah i um when you when you first told me about this and i watched it one night like yeah i was like really taken by it and i did watch it again like five or six months later and like this is the thing that's right up my alley um i don't know if i have much more to add to to what you said other than i think that when you say that it's like a throwback i think it's not only a throwback i think it's also a statement on the time period of the 70s where being done in 1981 that i think it's um there's a lot of social commentary on the fallout of Vietnam, on the fallout of the attempt and failure of turn on, tune in, drop out, like, you know, and that yeah. whole thing. Like, and these aimless people um, that are like just trying to deal with their trauma and find a life in some way. And to me it ends up like i told you off air like a low rent chinatown like it's it's not as fancy it's like more realistic it's more kind of like not even gritty it's just kind of just sadder um uh in that sense where it's like the stakes are all lower in it but i also think that it is brilliant in the sense of like some of its dialogue at times like with these like very noir-esque lines at times and there's there's a there's a scene where it's like bone and cutter are talking and um bones like talking about his alcoholism and cutter sits there and says i don't drink you know the routine grind drives me to drink tragedy i take straight and it's like holy tragedy i take straight like sounds like it's something like right out of like spade or marlowe or something like that yeah um 
and then there's another sequence where it's you know comes off as like kind of comedic but really defines the relationship between bone and cutter where bone says um you know you've got one big problem and cutter says what's that and bone says your imagination and cutter says these are just the facts rich i mean i haven't even begun to let my imagination loose on this one and like there's that kind of like almost like paranoid element and it, it really defines that relationship between bone and cutter in the sense of like cutter is such a charismatic personality despite all of his faults right that he just pulls people along with him and bone who has no like you've said kind of like almost purpose or path in life just kind yeah. of like you know but he, he also loves cutter like it just keeps getting pulled along with his bullshit whether it's bullshit or not just keeps getting pulled along with his bullshit um but let me ask you this like jeff bridges plays bone in this movie right like right do you think that um the coens oh yeah are actually That's... like mocking this like with lebowski like to some degree or a ha- homage mocking? yeah i wouldn't use mocking i think it's i think it's an extrapolation of what this character becomes if he's just allowed to continue down that path because like how different is walter and cutter right it's very similar like think of that line i just said you know what your big problem is what's that your imagination these are just the facts rich <laughs> like it found it sounds like something directly out of walter's mouth right these are just facts dude right <laughs> right um so i think that's i i think that's a really good analogy is is those characters and i think i think the coens had to have known this movie well enough to like pay that homage without making it like super super obvious Mm -hmm. the other thing i was thinking of when i was watching this movie and i i think it's really good to say um that it is a statement piece that it's a it is almost a condemnation of what's coming in the 1980s because look at um look at first first blood and then first blood part two right and you've got this first movie that's a very dour even though there's action in it it's a very dour and kind of like restrained look at the way the vietnam veterans were treated when they came back and even though it's like sensationalized it it still is is like a really incredibly like tight movie i think Mm -hmm. and then you've got first blood part two which is just you know rambo like popping up from the rice patties with his machine gun and like mowing down the Viet Cong and stuff. And, um, I, I, I think that's kind of what Cutter's way is sort of a, like is refuting is that idea that there's actual important stories to be told about this thing that still at the time in the early eighties was kind of like a national shame in a lot of ways not only in the sense of like being in vietnam for as long as we were but how people were treated when they came back and i think that bone is a really almost like the the proxy for the like the american experience in the sense that there's guilt and there's still attachment but there's no desire to actually make things better or do anything right it's like as long as i'm like kind of just hanging around and sort of being here with these people i'm doing the right thing 
and I'm not actually making anything change or better. Um, and I, I didn't read anything about this movie. I have no idea, like what if that was the intention or what the intention is. But um, without digging think, deep, there's not a lot out out there about this movie. I'll be honest. So, if any young person is listening to this, it's probably a good <laughs> thing to like maybe like write a dissertation. <laughs> not a lot out there. But yeah, fantastic movie um, on all fronts. Um, we were talking about if I ordered this list based on, you know, the just an objective view. And for me, it's the game um, as the number five movie. Uh, I think Wait Until Dark is four, Parallax View is three. Um, I put Diabolique as number one because I just think that it's one of the more like brilliantly directed and especially for as early as it is to be as like thematically as like complex and kind of controversial, but man, this movie is like one a or one B like, it's just really fantastic and definitely like a hidden gem, I think. So, yeah. And it's the first movie, you know, while that we've talked about that. I'm so glad that you told me about this movie. Cause I absolutely like love this movie having only watched it twice in the past year um it's 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 that good to me um i tend to like neo-noir and be into all that kind of stuff and uh this works really well and i think the performances are all excellent and like uh what it's doing yeah philosophically socially like all those things are really good the um the cinematography on this did um brewster mcleod which we've mm. talked about yeah that makes sense yep uh um, there's a lot of similarity there actually sure uh he did rolling thunder uh which we haven't talked about with what is interesting he did altered states which you can also probably see uh which we've talked about in the podcast he also did blade runner and then he did buckaroo bonsai which you haven't talked about yet. And then Peggy Sue got married, which we've talked about on the quick page. Mm-hmm. Um, also did Stop Making Sense, which is interesting. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's an underrated part of this movie, again, is the cinematography of this, of how things are framed and where the camera's placed and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan... Jordan Cronenweth is the guy's name. Um, all right. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this list overall, Frank. So, I yeah, appreciate it. Um, it's a good list. Yeah. Uh, I did want to bring up one more thing. I just didn't want to talk about it earlier. I wanted to ask you to see if you knew. Do you, do you know, how, like, the number of music videos that Fincher has done? Did you know that he was a music video director? Yeah, time? I used to know a bunch of them. Oh, okay. He, so he, he did he did out of time. No, um, losing my religion. Is that right? No, no that's that other guy. That's Tarsim or whatever. Yeah. Um, you want to take one? Tell me some. So he, he did. Jenny's got a gun. Yeah, that makes um, sense. He did. Uh, Freedom from George Michael. Um, mm. he did. Who is it from Michael Jackson? Which is a late. I think black and white video. Um, but he also did Vogue. <laughs> um, that makes sense too. He did Express Yourself as well the year earlier. Um, 
underrated Madonna song. And um, oh, I gotta pull that up. He did Nine Inch Nails only. If I don't know if you're familiar with that video, only yeah. I don't know that song. Okay. Uh, is that it? There's something else I thought that he did. Oh, Cradle of Love. He did. Mm. That's what it was. Um. Oh, that's a new one. I didn't see that one before. He did. Um. See Wonders Holding On, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I I've seen that video subsequently on YouTube. Um. No, oh, he did. He did. He did. Uh, Don Henley's "The End of Innocence" video. Mm, I, dude, that's one of my like, <laughs> like low key favorite videos. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. What's um, the best Don Henley song? "Forever Your Girl." He did. Um, that's not a Don Henley song. No, no, no. That's that's no. It's, that's Paul Abdul, buddy. <laughs> yes, it is. He also did. Hey, cold, he did "Cold Hearted" as well. Um, cold Hearted. Um, snake your question was what best on henley song oh um does this go back to just don henley not the yeah don henley by himself don henley by himself mm. um there's a right answer and then there's an actual right answer. <laughs> um, I mean the the end of innocence is a great song. Um I mean hold on, are you oh no, I just realized you're setting me up. How am I setting you up? You're setting me up because I think you know what my answer is, and you're gonna try to like you're gonna try to upend me like at the last minute here <laughs> at the at the zero hour. Um it's it's New York Minute. <clears throat> that's that's my that's probably my answer. I fucking that's, love New York Minute. Yeah, you do. I hate that song. The Heart of the Matter is a really good song though, too. The Heart of the Matter is is the right right answer. Yeah. Boys of Summer is the like knee jerk right answer. Boys of Summer is just so mid. On the road today, I saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. A little voice inside my head said, don't look back. You can never look back. Come on. Man. I think fucking, New York Minute is one of the greatest openings and twists of any song that I've ever heard. I literally, I hate New York Minute so much. I know you do. That's Every time you play New York Minute at the bar, I'd be like, mm, <laughs> this. How can we never play till Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> You know that song Voices Carried? That'd be good on the playlist. <laughs> uh, I miss being a drunk. <laughs> Life has lost all meaning. <laughs> hmm. All right. Well, no, I really enjoyed this list um, as like a departure from kind of the standard stuff um, that yeah. we do a lot of times. And um, yeah, I'm really glad that you told Looking me forward to doing stuff. 73 and the Fresh Five, which are our next two. Not to steal not, your thunder. Not um, not um, not the second episode of the top five movies that um, Chris loves and Frank is indifferent to. Not that one that comes after the Fresh Five. That's still so far away. I got. I I have to. You, you haven't even sent me away. that list. No, you haven't even sent me that what? list. What? Yes, I have. 
No, I don't remember. I told you. I told you exactly what that list is. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't seem to have it in my notes here. (laughs) Okay. When I say in my notes, I'm actually scrolling through the action figure subreddit. So. (laughs) Uh, you buying anything? Just getting ideas (laughs) of things to buy. Mm Hmm. Are you currently bidding or watching anything that you might buy on eBay? No, I just actually won an auction for um, a complete with file card uh, Law and Order from G.I. Joe, like 1987 figure mm-hmm. um, that I got for like super fucking cheap. So I was really stoked about that. Nice. So, yeah. All right. So we will be, it's a five Friday month. So we will be. Uh, taking a break next week, coming back the last week of April, and we will be back with, like Frank said, the top five horror movies in 1973, and then back two weeks after that with the Fresh Five, one of my, always one of my most look forward to episodes. So we're break? Oh, two weeks. Break, 73. Break, because we always take off the first week of the month now. Oh, I didn't realize. I, it's that's like what I, I told you last. It's exactly <laughs> what I texted you last night. Remember, meow, 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 meow. meow. <laughs> you, you asked the question. I know it's crazy. It is. Um. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a good week. Yep. Deuces.